Jamal Khan, Advisory Board Member of Intercheck Australia, CEO of Project Resource Partners, fluent speaker of Spanish and French and managing partner and owner of Amrop Carmichael Fisher. Welcome to Discipline. Thanks, Tony. Morning. It's customary to jump straight into things with some questions about you as a youngster. Yeah. Uh, when you were a young boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> that was uh, the ultimate question, Tony. So father asked me that question. I think I was about four. And do you know what the answer is? I wanted to be tall. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to be tall. <laughs> so to be briefly honest, I really didn't have a clue. My, my, my dad was an academic um, professor of classics, Latin and Greek literature. So I thought whatever he does, I want to do the opposite <laughs> because uh, really had no interest in academia. Uh, mother was a lawyer. Okay. Um, I went down that route. Yes. Had a lot of lawyers in the family. Um, studied law at university. Think. Dur- Durham? Durham, yeah. yeah. And then did your legal placement in Nottingham? Correct, yeah, which was my hometown. Um, it was a good law school, and, and, and so I uh, decided to um, go with Nottingham. Um, post that, really, honestly, didn't know what I wanted to do other than I, I didn't enjoy law. So... As a, as a background, yeah. we'll get back onto that, but as a background uh, in parents in legal and academia, mm. did you do anything then entrepreneurial as a child or were you...? Well, I always had an entrepreneurial itch, Tony, I think, um, but I, in my first job I was constantly thinking about new markets, new segments, what could we do differently, but I think I was still a little bit immature and naive in terms of the execution bit, so I, was, I always had the ideas. Um, but actually doing them, yeah, wasn't quite there. I think I needed the experience and the knowledge to be able to do that. Um, so, yeah. So so coming from uh, quite an academic family then, what, yeah. what kind of student were you maybe in high school? <laughs> a dreamer, a jock, or quite a diligent student? I was probably the opposite, actually. So... I got accused of having a photographic memory, <laughs> which was a good thing because true or false? I, yeah, probably true. Um, I've got a very good memory, so I, I, I managed to rely on my memory as opposed to my diligent <laughs> academic skills to get me through. Play to your strengths. Um, yeah. Uh, now this probably helped give me a bit of direction. My father and mother separated when I was four, and I got raised by my father. So. That made a big difference in terms of my life because he brought me up on his own from four to eleven. Um, so, so that did change things, and perhaps not the normal upbringing, and, and probably gave me some of the fire in my belly as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, and yeah. you went to university. I did. Did your law? Yeah. But then didn't you were a qualified solicitor, yeah. but didn't practice. Never Correct. Went in yeah. Practiced. Yeah. And yeah. why was that? So I finished law school and thought, right, there's a lot more admin than, than I was hoping for. Um, what I seemed to, what, what I actually enjoyed was the advocacy size, negotiations. Um, I, I still got a, a good attention to detail and got eye for detail, so I enjoyed some of that sort of work. But but the, the broad-based admin and actually having to start at the bottom and not being able to get to a partner and control your destiny until you were probably in your 40s at least in most cases, didn't overly appeal. Um. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not saying I've got yeah. a photographic memory, but yeah. I, I also went through, I did practice for a couple of years yeah. at one of the big firms and one of the things I always struggled with mm. was that sort of, um, you know, logical progression that yeah. generally didn't go with how talented you were yes. but often went with how long you'd sat in the seat. Correct, yeah. And, and I thought that's a ridiculous way for a, yeah. for a person to be rewarded or not. Exactly. It's all about tenure and my view was uh, I think you should be judged based on merit and, and, and how well you're performing Yeah, and you should potentially be paid like that as well. Absolutely. Which doesn't work like that in law firms. It's very hierarchical. It's a pyramid. It's almost a Ponzi scheme to be honest, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> the old partners go off and play golf while the uh, young associates do all the work and the partners cream all the money. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and not not saying that any of my partners did this, but <laughs> steal a couple of your billable hours for themselves and mark it up by 600% yeah. in the process. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, while you were doing that, you are looking mm. at law and thinking, well, that's not for me. Yeah. 
So what drove you into this recruitment space then? Well, it's, it's an interesting one. I think there's a lot of people that left law and actually went into recruitment, but not necessarily by design. And back then, recruitment was a lot less sophisticated and, and immature relative to what it is now. Um, I actually went along to a recruitment firm and they turned around to me and offered me a role after I'd been through a very lengthy process for a financial services sales role. Right. I uh, got down to the final two out of 600 candidates, six rounds of interviews, excessive testing for days on end. And they said, right, you're the next hire. We're going to hire the first person with all the qualifications, the financial planning certificates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because you're straight out of law school, effectively, we'll hire you in the next three to six months as hire number two. But the, the, the recruitment firm at that point said, actually, that's amazing. Come and work for us. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a proper sliding door yeah. moment here. You're yeah. going for the, got out of law school, going for the financial services or financial yeah. Uh, sector. Yeah, there's wealth management. And, and then, being poached yeah. out of it by a recruitment company into mm. recruitment. Exactly. I didn't have a clue what the recruitment firms did. I thought it was HR at the time. Yep. And back then, very different to what we do now in a search business, it's much more, it's probably 80% sales. And the the manager at the time said, well, if you don't really know what we do, then go away, research, come back, present tomorrow. If I'm happy and you're happy with what you find, you can start on Monday. Um, so next day, did my homework. It's a bit hard without the internet back then. Yeah, right. They gave us <laughs> some brochures to read. Yeah, well, it's brochures. I went away, did my research. I think I remember going through the yellow pages, looking at the number of recruitment businesses, and was shocked that in Nottingham, which is a tiny city, really, it doesn't two hundred and fifty thousand people in Nottingham. There are about four thousand recruitment firms. No, I nearly fell off the chair. So I thought, oh, there's a big market here. Yeah, I did my homework, made a few phone calls to people that would know what they actually do, and then thought, okay, it's not HR really. It's more of a sales focus, very commercial role. All the things we talked about that you can't do in law firms. You get instant client access. You control your own destiny. You control your earnings. I think it was from there that got my kind of entrepreneurial fire going and actually taught me the basics around how to create something from nothing. And, I mean, you know, going from law, you're looking at sales roles uh, mm. in the financial services sector, and this is presented as a sales role. Yeah. Was there anything about sales, I mean, gift of the gab or yeah, look, empathy that led you down that path? Yeah, look, I, I think there's a strong degree of EQ. I read people very well. Um, which I didn't necessarily understand back then. I, was, I, was, I graduated when I was 20. I was, tw I was 21 by the time I'd finished law school, so I was still pretty young and in inexperienced given the academic background of my, my father. Um, so <laughs> when, when did you go from taking this job to saying, yeah. you know what, I can actually set up my own firm because yeah. you've done that very successfully. Yeah. When... What led you out of being an employee <laughs> and saying, I'm going to do this myself and take even more control of my earnings and my destiny? So it was um, it was pretty scary as uh, I'd never done sales before. And our, uh, the first three or four months was very, very difficult. Um, almost had phone phobia. Um, and my MD at the time looked at me and it was almost like something out of um, Glen Gary Glen Ross, if you know the movie. Yes, absolutely. Put the coffee down. Coffee's for closers. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. It took a few months to get up to speed. I read a book called um, How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins. Yep. No, it will. A little bit cheesy, but actually taught me a lot of valuable lessons, how to master phone sales and various others, and actually put a lot of that into practice. Yes. And found that after about three months, I started to kick some goals, uh, and then very quickly um, had someone working underneath me and, and, and developed quickly into a revenue generator and were one of the top performers in the in the business and found actually it was... I found it relatively easy. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that is a big quantum shift to yeah. from phone phobia to a top seller. Mm. What was it in your DNA that got you to bridge that yeah. bridge that gap? I mean, you so, read a book, that's one yeah. thing, but to decide to... I think it was a mind shift, Tony. So if you read that book, um, Tom Hopkins talks about numbers and 
certain number of no's will equal a yes and therefore don't view all of the knockbacks as uh, as negative view it as one step closer to a yes yep. and and shifting that actually made me think right I'm going to I'll make 110 calls today and I'll only get 10 yeses but for every nine or ten no's, I'm going to get a yes. So just treat it as a numbers game and, and, and plough through and eventually you'll get the uh, the results. And so it was that mind shift of reading that book that made me think, yeah, that, that, that that's the way. And I think any uh, any entrepreneur that I've spoken to mm. um, will tell you that sales is a grind. It is a numbers game. Exactly. There's lots of things you can do to improve your odds. Yeah, But exactly. ultimately you're still going to get a lot of no's. Don't yeah. take it personally. And going back to your question around setting up on my own, at that point, about 12 months in, I thought, I can do this. I was generating, I was probably doing the same amount of work in a day that the others were doing in a week um, and thinking, well, I could probably generate five times as much as this, um, but I'm probably in the wrong environment because I need other high performers around me. At that point, I, I decided, right, I might go out and set, set up on my own. Yep. I then, um, I was working in a market, I then called another company, um, actually to try and get them to work with me and they convinced me to go for an interview with them. This is still in Nottingham? This is still in Nottingham, but it was a much more national firm. It was a company called Baden, Knock and Clark. Oh, yes. Which has a very good, strong reputation. Um, At that point, I was reconsidering going back into financial services because that's the market I was working in. Some of my clients had asked me to go and work for them and it was a toss-up between them versus staying in the recruitment industry. I thought I was quite good at it could set up on my own at that point the other company convinced me to go and work with them yep i ended up staying with them for about five and a half years it was another startup so it it was there's your phone there's your desk there's a marketing list go and build a business right Um, so i did that again was with them for the next five and a half years equity uh, no equity it was there was a little bit of equity but it was more an l-tip um I started off as a consultant, worked my way up. Um, I remember in the interview saying to my manager, he said, where do you want to be in two years? I said, I'm going to be doing your job, but I'm going to make you look so good that you'll be promoted anyway. And he'd love that. (laughs) I can't can't believe how cocky I was thinking about it. (laughs) It happened, and in two years I was doing his job. (laughs) He was promoted. And he was promoted, and he went off to New York to set up the New York office. Um, And I ended up running the, the East Midlands, and then overseeing some teams in um, in Manchester and Birmingham as well. At that point, I then decided, right, I'm going to go and set up on my own now. Uh, unfortunately, got convinced by the company I went to for backing to go and do it for them <laughs> again. I thought these guys are very, very switched on. They were young entrepreneurs of the year in the EY, um, uh, entrepreneurs of the year. They'd set up a very successful business and they said, well, look, we're going to list in the next two, three years why don't you come on board? We'll give you some equity. You can set up a number of offices uh, and then you learn it and then see what happens after the two, three years. Um, after that, we moved to Australia. <laughs> so never, they, did they list? Listed, went, went on the um, alternative investment market. Yep. What was the professional recruitment organisation with a number of different brands underneath, re-sprayed and became an end-to-end human capital management group called Hydrogen. Um, and, it, and it's listed and still listed to the to still this, got, to this still got your equity. Uh, no, I, I cashed out when I, when I left so. and, and took it to move to Australia. And we came to Australia at that point. Yeah, now that's a big move. Yeah, uh, what leads you to to leave all your business efforts and uh, contacts behind and, and start afresh yeah. in a new country? Look, I think I'm a bit of a, a thrill seeker, and, and I like the adrenaline the adrenaline of new things. Um, I'd never actually stayed and worked in a market that was mature. I'd always done startups, built something, and then kind of moved on, which I think I get the, the buzz from doing that rather than just ticking along. Yep. Um, well, someone described that to me as uh, the magpie syndrome. You see the next, yeah. move along to the next shiny thing. Yes, there's a little bit of that. Um, <laughs> it's not necessarily always the most lucrative relative to milking things. Um, so big move. Father got quite sick passed away um i'd had my first son and during that year of listing uh, with hydrogen barely saw him i was on the road all the time um fancied a change of scenery uh lorna said to me not australia <laughs> we looked at various other countries 
all things are pointing to Australia. I had quite a few friends here. Yeah. They said, you'll do very well here. Come, come and have a look. I, uh, I came and had a look. Two months later, I had six rounds of different firms I was meeting and interviews here and then chose Melbourne. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's another interesting choice. Uh, yes. Melbourne over Sydney, a lot of yeah. your fellow compatriots <laughs> end up uh, harbourside. Yes. Uh, what, yeah. what, what was it about this fine city? So it's interesting. I think um, back in the day I compared it to Sydney was more like London with beaches, which I thought great, and Melbourne was more like Manchester, which I thought, right. well, no, more of the same. <laughs> we came and had a look round. Um, I had, I think it was five companies in Sydney lined up and one in Melbourne. Um, I think there's a little bit of, uh, and it probably still exists now in, in, in Australia, that it's like, there can be a bit of parochialism in the, unless you've got the networks and you, you're from here, then I oh, know you've got to come in and prove yourself um, because it takes time and it's a relationship-based market. Um, so the, the job opportunity back then in Melbourne was bigger than in Sydney. Yep. Um, Lorna wasn't overly keen on Sydney. She said it's just like London. We may as well have moved to, to London. Um and my views were, well, I'm going to make friends wherever I am and I'm spending most of my day at 10, 12 hours a day at work and therefore, okay, if we're going to do it, Melbourne's fine. Um, Good move. Yeah, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's a great city. Talk to me now. We've, we've come to Melbourne. You've started uh, work with Carmichael Fisher. No, I actually started work with another company called Charterhouse. Okay. Everybody in Charterhouse was scared of setting up a Melbourne office. Uh, now, given I'd done a lot of startup businesses previously, and it was all phone, off you go, um, and I knew a number of the Charterhouse people who had actually worked with in the UK, they sent another guy from Charterhouse who knew the business and myself to come and set the Melbourne business up. So um, it really was a startup. So that was a raw startup. We had to come and I remember choosing the officers and literally from scratch. Um, it went very, very well, way ahead of budget. Um, and off the back of that, Michael Markovich, who was the founder of Carmichael Fisher back in the day, gave me a phone call and said, look, I've heard good things. I know you're only 18 months in, but come and talk to me about what you've done and I need someone to come and run Melbourne for me. At that point, I said, well, there's no point. I'm onto a good thing here. It's gone really well. We're earning good money. The business will grow and go from strength to strength. Um, unless it's an equity play, there's no point. Um, and eventually he caved and, and, and uh, we, we built in a, an equity plan and, and a ramp up. And over a period of time, over the next four or five years, that gradually increased to half of the business. Um, and then the same thing for, for Sydney. He was wanting someone to, to oversee Sydney. And then uh, more recently, I bought him out completely for, for, for Carmichael Fisher. And about 18 months ago, um, we joined the global network Amrock. So uh, that's what I was going to say. You've gone from um, complete ownership mm. and having full control to yeah. now fitting that into a, uh, a global group, Amrock. Yeah. yeah. I mean, does that now, once you've finally got both hands on the steering wheel, has that sort of curtailed cre creativity or your entrepreneurial spirit? No, involved. look, um, I think the beauty of AMROP is it's a semi-integrated network. So if you think about some of the accounting firms, the PwCs, the Deloitte's of the world, um, the partners own the firm. And effectively, that's me for, for, for AMROP in Australia for, this, for the short term until I bring more partners in as we reset and rebuild under the AMROP brand. Uh, brand. Um, the beauty is that they don't dictate to you how you operate. They don't let you in in the first place unless there's a values alignment and there's a strategic alignment as well. So it's a group of, a collective group of entrepreneurs all running their own firms, but branding um, in a cohesive manner so that globally you, you can work with global partners, global networks and, and, and global organisations that all view you as part of the same firm. And it obviously gives a lot of brand equity as well. Correct. Yeah. 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 So that's that's actually worked very well in terms of being part of that global network. You don't feel like a, um, a small outpost here in no, Australia? because the life. ownership still sits with me. Yep. Um, and therefore, I'd say you've got 99% control. Yep. They can't dictate to you to do anything. The way it operates is that we pay license fees and, and any of those license fees go towards promoting the broader Amrock brand, which helps us. Um, the, the more powerful we are as a group, the more powerful the firm is here. 
And presumably then there are people, go back to your journey, people that see Australia as a place they want to mm. to come to. They know the AMROC brand. Yeah. And that actually, being a global organisation, opens up opportunities for you? Correct, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we regularly speak and liaise with our colleagues across uh, Asia, Europe, the US, around multinationals that are looking to um, set up here or replace their leaders, the country managing directors or, or open new businesses here. Um, but also in terms of um, talent for ourselves. So, for instance, at the moment, we've got um, a secondee from our Portuguese office of AMROP um, right. over here for, for a month spending time with a research team while she also does her uh, month secondment for her MBA programme. So. Obrigado. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's get into the actual domain expertise then mm. of um, recruitment. Yeah. Talk to me about the importance of good people for business why why does it matter uh, it's a good question so i think a couple of years ago bcg did a uh, study of what's keeping ceos and board members awake at night and the number one or two priority that came up was people um, what's preventing you from achieving your strategic objectives people what, what's going to um, enable you to achieve those people it's all about good people and it's all context driven so I think the biggest mistake people make is that they think one size fits all um, it's your biggest prohibitor of growth and also your biggest facilitator so well that, that was my, my next yeah. sort of question what what is the main mistake that businesses make when they hire someone then is it that desperation because they need people look I, I always learned it as there's desperation, but there's a there's a degree of what, what we'd call in the industry back in the day, halos and horns. So the moment somebody walks in the room, you, you instantly you've got a conscious or unconscious bias towards that person. Do they look like me? Do they dress similar to me? Are they like me? Well, that's what we call cultural fit, isn't it? That they fit in with us. On the one hand, you've got companies that are saying we want diverse thinking and diversity, but on the other hand, you only hire people like yourself. Yeah. So how, how does that actually work? Um, I think the biggest mistake people make and companies make is that they hire a group of people that are all the same and they have huge gaps in their thinking. But they've got to be okay with people being different to them to uh, to, to build true diversity in an organisation. Yeah. Um, so that there are a number of mistakes. That's that's a key one in my view. And the other one is that they don't pick people that are contextually fit for purpose. So if you think about most organisations, well, actually organisations more broadly, um, they're, they're in different phases of evolution. There's startups, there's turnarounds, there's companies realigning, there's BAU, how do we sustain success? What works in a big company that's in BAU mode, it doesn't necessarily work in a startup. Yeah. And the, I see many, many small and medium-sized scale-ups hiring these big corporate people that have got great CVs that look yes. fantastic. Yes. They bring them in, they fail miserably. Yes. It always happens. Yes. And it's because they're not fit for purpose contextually. They're not a startup person. They don't know how to roll their sleeves up. It's a shock to them that they have to write a report because they have a, someone else that normally does that for them. Yes. Um, it's can, all about context and fit. And for, for, for listeners, I can give you a, a real-life example of this. In my last startup that I was CEO of, Yeah. Um, hired a person for the marketing role from American Express. And I remember during the interview saying, this is a very different sort of company to American Express and you mm. have to roll your sleeves up, you have to get into the detail. Yeah. There are no support mechanisms. It's you talking to me. Um, that's going to be a challenge. Uh, no, no, this will be brilliant. I had his uh, resignation letter on the Friday of his first week. <laughs> wow, yeah. And a, and a common story as well, I think, Tony. Yeah. Very common. So, I mean... In this, and in hearing you talk, there's a mm. massive change that's happened, and you alluded to it yourself at the start. Yeah. You know, talking about um, bum on a seat, just get someone into the organisation. It was more yes. like a sales role. Yes. Now the industry looks to you as a consultant almost, a specialist yeah. to bring yeah. in human resource capital. Is this, this is a big change in the industry. Look, it's a big change, but there are different types of recruitment businesses. I think the, the, the businesses I learned uh, my trade in originally were much more sales-focused. They were what we would call recruitment agencies, and they're more akin to real estate. Um, 
Whereas I think my career has evolved more towards the executive search side and there is much more of a degree of HR consulting involved in exec search versus recruitment. Whilst there is a degree of business development and you're having to headhunt candidates and and, um, sell opportunities to them, you can't oversell them ultimately um, and therefore it becomes much more about representing the company and selling their value proposition as well as the value proposition for the role um, but then there's a very strong degree of assessment as well so within AMROC for instance we don't just do executive search we do leadership and board services and it's HR consulting effectively yeah. um, so there's a lot more science around selection um, in terms of behavioural interviews and various tools that we use etc as well um, and the exec search industry is deemed to be part of management consulting it was originally set up for senior roles on a global basis by X, Booz and McKinsey people with the same operating model yeah. um, versus the recruitment agency side of things, which is much more like real estate. Yeah, and I suppose one of the things um, I've always found frustrating about uh, recruitment industry is the, the fees, which yeah. still align um, to that real estate model where you pay a percentage for yeah. placing the ad and placing a bum on a seat. But with the higher end stuff, executive mm. search, when you're applying that science, I mean, that that fee structure seems a lot more um, yeah. reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I think the difference is that you may do very, very little work working in a recruitment business because you might float a CV to a client and then get paid fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 for just what appears to be firing a CV across. What they don't see in the background is that for every 10 times they do that, they only get paid once and there's a whole heap of work that goes into that. So it's a very different model with our model. It might involve two, three, four, even 12 months work before before we actually complete the assignment. Yeah. Constantly talking to people, mapping a market, going through assessments, interviewing 10 people, writing up the reports. There's a lot of work that goes into each mandate we run. Yep. Um, and, and it's not just one person. It's the partner. It's a support person. It's a researcher. Yes. Um, so if you think about the, the actual hours and the work entailed, it's a big job. And, and joining the dots from what you said earlier, yeah. get the right person, it's a massive enabler for the business. Correct. Get yeah. the wrong person. It will cost you potentially severely. Yes. <laughs> Um, so it's all about getting the right people because they're going to add the bottom line. And, and how do you, I mean, it's a very competitive industry. You said mm. in Nottingham there was 4,000 uh, recruiters <laughs> back in the day. There's yeah. so many people who put their shingle up and say they're in recruitment, executive yeah. search. So how, what sets you apart? How do you attract the right candidates? Look, I think it's, um, the, the candidate side is less difficult than the client side. So we work very much in a client-led market. Um, There's a combination of both. I've got strong research support. Um, And I think a lot of it is down to the technique around, um, I think you build your reputation and you build your trust and your name in the market so people are more likely to actually respond to a message or come back on a, on a voicemail because they've heard of you, they think you, you're part of a, a big global business so they'll pick the phone up and they want to talk to you because they want to be on your radar. Yeah. Um, most people are always willing to hear if there's a better opportunity for them in terms of a senior appointment then they want to hear about it and even if it's not for this one they want to talk to you and get to know you for something down the track so yeah Um, and on the client side it's it's about trust credibility and you're as good as your last appointment so you've got to consistently deliver you can never stuff up the moment you stuff up you potentially lose the client yeah Um, so it's very much consistency and delivery yeah well then then there's obviously a lot of uh, filtering that that goes on you've obviously interviewed a lot of people yeah Um, if I'm a candidate then what Mm. do I need to do to to make myself attractive and leap ahead in the queue you'd be surprised Tony the number of senior execs that turn up for interview for a specific role and in spite of us headhunting them you'd expect them that there can be a little bit of arrogance you've headhunted me and therefore I don't need to do my homework and research. You need to convince me why I should leave what I'm doing, doing well, and come to the role. Right. So 
I think in spite of that, if you made the decision to turn up for the interview, then the biggest advice I could give you is to make sure that you do your research, go through the um, accounts, go through, have a look at um, any areas you think that are of concern, do your homework, do your research. If someone um, turns up, yeah. Jamal, have, have they already signalled their intent to leave? Not necessarily, but they've signalled that there's that there's an interest. You've piqued their interest yeah. enough for them to come and talk to you to say this this role sounds interesting, yeah, uh, and therefore I, I want to come and find out more. Um, and then from that, once yeah. you're into the interview, so let's say they've mm. done their research, they're they're quite diligent. Yeah, what then? puts out good signals in an interview that this person's engaging and, and could yeah. be a good business leader. So, look, I think it's, again, it's contextually driven that the, the first part of the process is, from our side is to actually get a really, really good, strong brief from the client, and that's around the business, the company, the role, the context, what's going to be a cultural fit. So all of those things are being considered when we interview them, and particularly the cultural fit and the leadership traits. So... What works well in one business doesn't necessarily work well in another. So if someone turns up and they're super polished and, and kind of alpha and blah, 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 they might be great for a Goldman Sachs, but turn up to Bendigo Bank, they'll go well, go away. They're too polished. They're not, they're, they're, not, they're down a bit not down to earth. Yeah. We need someone with more humility. So it's about what's fit. It's not based on what you like and the, a lot of new consultants in – I talked about the halos and horns. Oh, I like this person. They're great. So their biases kick in and they're like me. So they must be a good candidate. Yes. Actually, no. Is, are they fit for purpose? Do they fit the culture of the organisation? So whatever the culture is, are they going to fit and work with the people and the leadership team as well as have they got the skills and they've got the leadership traits that are relevant based on what the, the, the context of that business is? It's funny. Um, you've just taken me back to my time in, uh, in London working for British Telecom. I had a hmm. fantastic boss uh, called Nigel Cheek and uh, he said to me many years ago and I never understood it he said uh, when looking for for legal candidates he said you know I take it as a given that anyone who's been through university can be a lawyer right what I'm looking for is a cultural fit yes and he said an hour spent recruiting is Hundred hours saved down the track. Yeah, I mean, was yeah. was he right? I think he, I think he was right. I think he, yeah, I think he was right. Look, um, that's another major mistake companies make is that they hire based on knowledge and skills as opposed to traits, behaviours, cultural fit. It's very difficult for someone to change the way they behave. Apparently, from the age of fourteen, um, you're pretty much set in your ways by that time. Really. So, God. <laughs> so I think if you hire based on traits, most people will adapt and they'll learn. You can learn stuff. You can pick up knowledge. Yes. It's very difficult for you to change your behaviours. So if you've got someone that's diligent, they're, they're intelligent, they'll, they'll throw themselves into it. They'll work hard and they'll learn on the job. And it's those basic leadership traits that are very difficult to learn. You've either got it or you haven't. It's, it, 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 innate and so from a startup point of view and you, yeah. you've been involved in a lot yes where you've got you know scarce resources and you want to get people into the business yeah everyone talks about culture but you might have a need for a technical person yes what advice can you give someone who has that technical requirement to get in a seat and yet they still want that cultural fit Look, I think with with startups, the ideal scenario is you get people that fit the culture. But in in reality, as a startup, it can be very hard to attract people that are perfect. So I think in a startup scenario, you've got to get the job done. So you've got to think, well, the people that are here now to come in and get the job done aren't necessarily going to be here in one, two, three years' time. Right. And therefore, you've got to be pragmatic about it. This is the culture we're working towards, but at the same time, we've got to get shit done. Yes. <laughs> and if we don't, then we're not going to have a business. So what you can do, though, is to try and get people that are a bit adaptable, that are more or less the cultural fit, and the systems and the processes can actually create that culture. So you can create the culture along with the systems, the processes, the, the way you operate within the business. And culture is really, it's the, the way you do things. So if you lay out expectations clearly 
and align incentives towards those behaviours, then realistically most people want to do a good job and they will work towards those incentives. So a lot of it's about alignment with the strategy, understanding what they need to be doing and driving the right behaviours through rewarding them. And so you can create the culture by doing that. And as a and as a startup founder who might not yeah. be um, that well versed in hiring and firing people, yeah, when's the right time to get rid of someone? What are the, what are the horror signs that as a startup that you yeah, say, yeah. So, this someone, is not going to work out? But you want it to work out so much that you hang yeah. on. The, the the biggest advice is hire slow and fire fast. So be very 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 diligent. Do as much as possible to make sure you've got the right people in the first instance. You will see when people are on probation, any small things that niggle you are going to be exacerbated as soon as they're out of probation. If people start turning up a little bit late and you think they're a bit of a slacker and they're not doing well, they're on probation, it's going to be a hell of a lot worse once they get past the three or six months. If you start seeing signs of those things, flag them straight away lay out what good looks like and expectations and I think if you know they're not going to make it make a decision pretty quickly before the probation is finished because you've then got to pay out more etc and worry about um, issues around uh, or legal issues from an employment perspective so I'd say use that probation use the probation period effectively and um, if you spot signs address them if you if they're just not improving Move them on. And don't hope the behaviours will change because they're locked they're in not place for 14 Correct. years old. They won't, will not change. So the, if you want someone to uh, climb a tree, hire a squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about yourself? Let's go back to you. Mm. Um, mentors, have you have you had any and how would you choose one? Sure, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm in the middle of looking for mentors now. So I, I'm the sort of person that will... Build strong relationships and networks with a broad range of people and always be picking their brains. So rather than having one specific mentor, I will, uh, I think I'm a bit like a sponge. Every All the people that I, I meet, I will pick their brains. And if you think about my role as well, I'm interviewing CEOs and board members and very senior execs, two, three, and five people a day in some, on some days. So if you think of that, in over 22 years, you learn a lot. What that actually means is it's very difficult, therefore, to find one person that you'd think, oh, they're amazing, because you've seen so many people in terms of what good looks like and what bad looks like. Um, Having looked for individual mentors for a number of years, about a year, two years ago, I decided it's quite difficult to do that. Um, We set up a number of advisors for, for an advisory board effectively for us which we use really as mentors for the business as well as ourselves but I actually went out and got an executive coach as well okay um, and I went and did the coaching course myself so I'm also a qualified exec coach yep um, because I was finding that CEOs are constantly asking and me as a trusted advisor for advice and so I thought if I hone those coaching skills that would be good but it would be useful for me to have a coach too and I managed to find a guy that um, was started off life as a chartered accountant then he had 15 years in, in industry um, and then he had some time at one of the big five search firms and more recently the last actually recently over the last 10 12 years he's been an exec coach to um, a mixture of SME as well as large corporate CEOs so I like the fact that he could flit in and out of being a coach as well as a mentor so would you look favorably on a on a CEO who has a, an exec coach Is that- I think if you dig beneath the scenes most good CEOs will have a coach of some sort um, and it's very difficult for often the HR director within a corporate will act in that capacity however it's very difficult because a true coach in the true sense of the word as a coach needs to be independent dispassionate they need to be dispassionate they need to be independent and they can't be tied to that company they need to be a a third party at arm's length that isn't in any way biased whereas how can an HR director truly be um, acting in the best interests of that person. For instance, they might coach that person to say, you need to leave the company. An HR director can't do that without conflict, so they need to be neutral. And a, and a, and a CEO might want the HR director to leave the company. Correct. So, so most big, well, most CEOs I know have got coaches. It's interesting. Um, because he's lonely at the top. Um, very lonely at the top, Tony. So 
that's the difference. You're part of an exec team, you've got other peers you can talk to. Once you get to the CEO level, it's, it's who do you talk to? You yes. can talk to your chair, but what if he or she's the problem? <laughs> it is it's lonely. lonely. It's a, yeah, yeah, right. Well, I think it's a fascinating insight, actually. Mm. Um, and for your for your own self, you know, again, being an owner of the business. Yeah. Uh, you talked about right at the beginning the fire in the belly from uh, yeah. from childhood. What keeps you motivated? How do you keep yourself motivated? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a colleague and I used to constantly speak about this in the early days. We were the top two performers in that business, and we were the ones that were always scared that we were going to get fired if we didn't perform at a high level. So it wasn't necessarily that we wanted to be the best. We were scared of failing. And, and that stuck with me. And I think it's not, okay, it's the sense of achievement of building something and doing a good job. I actually really enjoy what I do because I know that what I do has a huge impact on companies and organisational success. Yes. You get them the wrong person, as we said, massive impact yeah, for the right person as well. So, um, What about, you know, being in this industry yeah. for, since you've left university? Yeah. Uh, it, it's obviously evolved massively and you're still very passionate about it. Mm. How, do you, how do you keep your interest in this industry? Look, as I said, I think you, you're constantly learning. You're interviewing really interesting people. You get to learn what good looks like, average and bad. So it's a constant learning. You never stop learning. And I think if you're open to, to learning, then it's one of the best industries you can possibly have. You have constant exposure to the most senior people that are running the country and running successful organisations. And it's quite inspiring and interesting to, to, to meet all these different personalities and learn about what they're doing and what's worked and what hasn't. I'm pretty sure I could write several books. Yeah, you should. Uh, <laughs> you actually should. I mean, you've had a front row seat to captains of industries yeah. and even been responsible for their uh, career progression or, or, or stalling them, I guess, to some extent. Exactly. What personality trait do you see in CEOs across the board that makes them rise to that position and continue <laughs> to ascend and in yourself yeah. as well? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So there's many psychologists that have argued that a lot of CEOs would be on the hair, if you're familiar with the hair scale in terms of psychopathy, that they would actually tick many of the boxes that psychopaths tick. <laughs> <laughs> in term- <laughs> and this is, a tr- this is actually true, but they channel their energies towards corporate and to actually doing good rather than evil. Right. So it's that, it's the relentless drive for success, no yes. matter what it takes putting the business first yes i think that's starting to shift now and you you see the old school alphas that it's all about them and their big egos that's no longer what a, a, a strong leader no, looks like not at uh, all i don't know if you've ever read the book from good to great well, jim collins jim collins yeah so he, he's a, a very well publicized um business leader and I can't remember it's Harvard or one of one of the top Ivy League business schools, and a number of um, corporations across the globe for the last 10, 15 years have been using that uh, as a leadership development tool to take their businesses from good to great. Yes, they talk. He talks about different levels of leadership, and the level five leader is not the the, the one that's there rah rahing and the inspirational motivator. It's a step back. He's letting all of his team take the credit or she's take, letting all of her team take the credit and, and, and pushing forward their their uh, their executive team to allow them to, to, to take the credit. And they're at the back. If you, th- if you think about the bus, they're, yeah. they're, they're, uh, they're driving the bus and everyone is along for the journey and doing their part. It's the, um, I think one of the principles in that book as well was the, the mirror and the window principle when things are going well, they look uh, out the window and say, it was because of all of these wonderful people. Yes. And when things are going badly, they look in the mirror and say, Correct. this is because of me. Exactly. Take responsibility and accountability. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if I look now at what good leadership looks like, the, the best leaders, are the level five leaders in that context that Exactly. If it goes wrong, they look in the mirror. and it goes right, well, it's because of everyone around me that they've made this happen. And we're yeah. seeing the same again. Look at the look at the Royal Commission now, yes. um, and, and companies like NAB and AMP. And it was we talked about incentives driving behaviours. 
those incentives drove the wrong behaviours because it was all about driving sales no matter what. And there's probably a bit of alpha sort of machismo that went along with those types of uh, we, we do whatever we need to to earn our bonus. And, yeah. and so it's all about money. So that leads into we, we, we've done a big piece of work in AMROP around what we call wise decision making, which is about sustainable building businesses on a sustainable basis. And it's taking a long term approach to how you build companies rather than very, very short term. Um, and it's fascinating because thinking about this, you know, as a shareholder, you you want uh, the businesses to move forward incredibly rapidly. Yes. There's still as a shareholder going to be a financial imperative in why you invest in businesses. And yeah. yet when you're looking for leaders and sustainability, that, that might, might even cause some tension. It will cause tension and that's, that, that's the problem. How do you incentivise the average CEO whose tenure will be probably three to five years to build you a business that's going to last 10, 20, 100, 200 years. Very, very difficult quandary. It uh, needs values from the board down to sort of set the agenda, doesn't it? Correct. And the board needs to recognise that if the business needs to invest and it's about the long term, you need to try and incentivise the leaders in the business along those lines uh, to align to the strategy. Um, I think history will show you that the businesses that think sustainably and act in the best interest of the customer and long term actually always outperform those that don't. Um, I think it's probably probably very very true and eventually someone will find out look at AMP look at NAB look at all these businesses or the macro factors around you will change Mm. that force your hand even more unfavourably than if you uh, got on the front foot correct yeah exactly now we'll finish here with a quick fire round about you Jamal Uh, who's your favourite comedian so there's a guy called Stephen K. Amos who uh, probably comes out here about once a year. He is absolutely hilarious. Who's your favourite tennis player? <laughs> tennis player, oh, I think Federer. He's, he's just a machine. He's, he's so consistent, never any excuses. He always rises to the occasion. Favourite mm. band? Favourite bands? I've, I've, I haven't got a specific band. I've, I've, I love a really eclectic mix of, of music I play the guitar a bit I I, uh, I like jazz I like the occasional bit of rock I'll listen to dance music get me pumped up in the morning in the car it's, it's a fairly broad range so fondest childhood memory oh that's a good question fondest childhood memory look I, I uh, as I mentioned my father brought me up I used to have fond memories of um, actually going to, to, to the university with him where he lectured and um, sitting there he, he occasionally he'd have to jump off to a lecture and I'd, I'd sit in his office and I'd be doodling on the boards um, and then I used to go down and he used to put me in the, in, in the, cafe, in the cafe sometimes and I'd sit, I'd stand there when I was probably eight or nine and play pool with all the 18 year old <laughs> students and I used to give them a good whipping sometimes. And I think uh, this is all right. they, this these is all are right. the heady days. It was uh, it was great fun. I'd be there hanging out with the students, and I was and uh, <laughs> I was nine years old, and they're all double my age. That might that might <laughs> actually uh, might have actually explained a lot about why your EQ is so strong. Sort of. <laughs> hanging out with older absolutely older people, and um, yeah, I used to constantly tag along with my dad and hang around and listen to the intellectual conversations that he'd be having as an academic with with older people. So. What about your most memorable smell? Oh, that's a great question. Never had that one. Most memorable smell. Do you know what? Um, my father remarried. Mum's English. He, he remarried an Indian. The first time I went to Mumbai and I came off the plane, the heat hit me and the smell hit me. I just could not believe that you could be driving around a place and uh, it was in, it was sensory overload. The noise, the smells, everything. everything. Visually. I'll never forget that. And that's the first thing. You, you, you go to India, it all hits you, including the smell. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, you've got kids yourself. Yeah. What kind of dad would they say you are? Um... So look, I I think they would say that uh, I'm good fun. I always try and um, coach them. They'd probably say I'm a pain in the backside sometimes because I try and steer them in certain directions and give them advice. And it's 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 hard. You're always learning on the job. Um, 
I spend a lot of time ferrying them around at uh, weekends. Um, but that's hard to split the time because I've got three boys and so you're always driving sport, off in one direction sport. with basketball, with football, yeah. with various different sports. Um, I think my little one, uh, he likes jumping in the two-seater with me and, and coming for little drives and then he's got an arcade machine at home and he likes me to sit and play with him so he enjoys that and he'd talk about that. So you sound like a hands-on kind of day. Yeah, try and be as hands-on as possible and spend as much time with them at the weekend as possible it's pretty hard nowadays with my, my eldest a 14 year old I barely see him he's always out doing stuff and then he wanders off with his mates so, yeah. Um, but yeah I try and be as hands on as possible I don't see them a huge amount in the week because I'm working hard but then I'll uh, try and switch off uh, the laptop at the weekend and spend time and have fun with them and nice then, uh, yeah what skill are you not very good at uh, what am I not very good at um, <laughs> patience <laughs> patience I want everything now <laughs> and I'm not overly great I don't think I suffer fools gladly yes and so the patience comes in then if someone's not picking something up as quickly as I think they should them. do then I find that a little bit difficult yeah. that for me I can simplify things I think this, uh, there's a skill in turning the complex into the simple so when I see other people aren't getting stuff that to me seems straightforward uh, I can be okay, I have to bite my lip <laughs> so, so, so I'm not very good at being patient um, who is a person mm. dead or alive you would most like to have lunch with <laughs> that's a good question um, someone asked me this the other day and I'd love to have lunch with someone like a Richard Branson yeah I think he's a real character, isn't he? He, he, he? He's like the chief blagger of the whole world. He he's bluffed his way into yeah. doing, and I think he'd be an interesting, quite a, <laughs> quite, quite a bit of a hippie as well at heart, isn't he? So. If you read his book, he, book's I, I, fascinating. I'd love to see the book and how the person compares. The, the other one is the Queen. Yeah, the Queen's seen so much over the years. Times have changed so much. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to sit down and go have lunch with her and well, find well, out her views on the world. Lizzie, tell us. Tell us what do you know. <laughs> she knows a lot. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, what's next for you? So what's next? So um, it's continue to from a personal perspective. Try and continue to be a good dad and see all the uh, see the boys grow up and. And be happy and, and, and do well and um, professionally it's continuing to build the Amrock brand here um, build out the leadership the board services side and to scale the project's business um, that, that, that's my main focus that uh, keeps me busy brilliant Jamal Khan thank you very much for being on Discipline Tony it's been a pleasure thank you brilliant